0: Welcome to the Artificial Intelligence Podcast with your host, Dr. Tony Wong. I talk anything and everything that has to do with AI, ML, and data science. Welcome, guys, to the AI Podcast. I'm with Ayush, who is really interested in talking about uh, productionalization of uh, AI models. Ayush, can you tell me about yourself?
1: Thank you for having me, Tony. Uh, My name is
0: Ayush Sharma. I work
1: as a Chief Data Scientist uh, at a company here in Atlanta called MoGene, which is short for Mobile Geospatial Analytics. Uh, We mostly deal with working with big data and building uh, production-grade machine learning pipelines to generate actionable insights for our clients. And that will also be the topic that we'll be having a discussion today as well.
0: That's really cool. How long have you been in um, the AI ML space?
1: Uh, it's been I think
0: uh, I started my first
1: and it's interesting because uh, my first job as a data scientist was, was with this company as well so this was five years ago I joined as a data scientist but very soon I realized that uh, to be a data scientist you have to uh, expand uh, uh, your skills along the axis where you also have to understand how to uh, how to work with big data how to get it to to a point where then you can apply models. And that's where I expanded my skills to and learned about MLOps and how to uh, verify, verifiably apply it uh, to get to a point where we're ready to have, uh, we, we have a certifiable pipeline that can produce uh, insights on a daily basis.
0: Very cool. Um, so what, what can you tell the audience about uh, your journey? Like what was the the big epiphany that you had about um, how difficult it is to productionalize um, uh, these algorithms?
1: So the reason why I think MLOps is uh, getting so much attention uh, or is it the hard topic is because there are several pitfalls that happens when you're building a machine learning pipeline. And I think the first one is that a lot of people consider machine learning development workflow similar to software development workflow in that the the way you measure the success of a software development workflow is based on its outcome. If you're building a website, uh, then the efficiency of... Uh, The software development workflow depends upon uh, how scalable the website is, uh, if it's uh, uh, not vulnerable to DDoS attacks, or how how scalable it is in the sense that how many customers it can service, how how load balancing it is. But that is not the same with ML workflow. You cannot uh, define the efficiency of a machine learning workflow depending upon its outcome right out of the gate by saying, okay, well, this is not producing the results that we want, so it's not good. So I think that kind of thinking is uh, not applicable to machine learning workflow. It it needs to be procedural-based. Uh, people need to be okay with the fact that the first time you build the pipeline, the results are not going to be favorable, but what should be focused on is uh, the bedrock on which it was based on. If everything was done, every component, for example, uh, uh, the the... The cleansing of the data, the extraction of data, uh, model tuning—everything was based on good practices, good, good machine learning practices. And then you come around when you build the pipeline, you say, "Okay, now let me fine-tune the model and get the results we want." So I think that—that's that's so of the, interesting. That
0: one. That's so interesting because in my in my field, I I, I see a lot of people um, thinking that they can deploy machine learning models identical to a um, you know like a, like a tra- traditional comp sci approach, um, how, how often do you see uh, this misinterpretation uh, when you're talking to other people? Like, give me like a ratio, like you uh, know, like 50%, 60%, or just like
1: 100%. Yeah, I think 60 to 70% I see, because I think a lot of people consider machine learning algorithms to be a black box where if it has worked in a scenario that is similar to the use case that they have, everyone is convinced that, hey, we can just take this data And since it it represents a use case, similar to the use case where it verifiably worked, uh, they should work perfectly and where it does not, because then again, there's a lot of variables. Uh, Algorithm is very small part of the entire uh, machine learning uh, life cycle. So uh, that's where the assumptions are made that an algorithm good enough for use case A should also work with use case B if use case A and B are very similarly correlated, but that, so more so than often that never happens.
0: So, so how how uh, what's what is your approach to um, correcting this mismatch with uh, with people that that uh, that you've talked to? Is it just um, you know educating them? Is it kind of showing them like you know this these are the best practices? Or um, what is your approach to uh, correcting um, the, this this huge problem that we're having?
1: Oh yeah, I think the best the best way I find to uh, convey is to always show them a use case where. We have done things with previous clients where we build these pipelines for a specific use case and walk them through each stage and say, this is how much long it took and this is why it took so long. And not just mention, not just present, when we're presenting our work to a prospective client, uh, we don't present it as a resume where we only list our successes. We also see what were the roadblocks and why were they roadblocks? Mentioning exactly uh, what are the success criteria for building a good, reliable machine learning model. For example, uh, uh, basically, we focus on points as to why it cannot, it might not work, and that basically sheds light on what are the things that need to be carefully maintained. For example, just building a model uh, uh, on a on a on a data batch and uh, showing the results, it's not good enough. Uh, for example, uh, what what can happen is uh, as we are getting data more and more data. Uh, the distribution of the data can change, which will severely affect the the, res- the performance of the model. Even though it performed well with the offline data we trained it with, so making clients aware of the fact that uh, that all these factors do affect. Even though we can, even though initially right out of the gate by just working on a sample of the data, they see good results. That they will consistently see good results. It's not is not a is not a given uh factor. So making yeah, the that's so uh, as interesting. Aware.
0: So, so uh, speaking of use cases, um, you know, what have, what have you been doing um, like recently? Can you, can you give a use case of, of where you deployed this, um, you know, production uh, ready uh, uh, pipeline?
1: So the, the most recent use case that we worked with is uh, predicting the demand of, uh, of managing the supply chain problem of a major car manufacturing company and what they wanted to do was predict when the demand for a certain car would increase in terms of people leasing it so uh, we worked with the data that we have and then we uh, got some of the data they have and then that's where we start building the the pipeline and uh, obviously we started from the bottom uh, we start from the bottoms up approach uh, we built this all in aws uh, because that's where our tech stack is and one advantage of working with aws in this scenario was that we could make the pipeline completely serverless. I think one of the biggest mistake, or maybe it's not a mistake, but then it requires a lot of time is uh, that you can do building a production grade machine learning uh, pipeline is to build it from scratch. So uh, there are a lot of companies such as uh, Google, Microsoft, uh, Amazon that have reliably uh, figured out managed services that we can use a lot of help, for, especially as a small company or a mid-sized company that you can use their uh, resources. And that's where we started. So we started building this on AWS SageMaker, which is a fully managed serverless platform for deploying end-to-end machine learning solutions.
0: Very and- cool. Very cool. So, so can, can you tell the audience when it would be a good time to build versus buy um like a platform like that. So, like, when when is it a good time to build it from scratch, versus when is it uh, a good time to just buy like a managed service uh, system? Uh, I think uh, again,
1: and then again, this is just an opinion. Uh, might change from uh, person to person, but if 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 there's something, uh, if uh, if you're working on an algorithm, a machine learning algorithm that has other that has been used in other applications. You're working on procedures that somebody has already worked with, which 99% of the cases we're working on scenarios that somebody has already verifiably proved that the results are good. I think that's a good time to uh, deploy the services, uh, deploy the managed services. Only, I, I see only in applications and researches where you're working on new algorithm. As for example, the first time somebody was working in the transformer network, NLP. I think it would have been it would have been really hard for them to use uh, uh standard grade services because uh it's just a new technique but unless or until or unless there's really a need of that kind of research I always personally think that it's good to deploy managed services because of multiple reasons a uh, they decrease the cost a lot the amount of experimentation you can do with a limited set of hardware that you don't have to worry about is very freeing in the sense you don't have to worry about how much server space to rent. You don't have to worry about what kind of instances would work. All of that has been uh, configured for you already. So that's where you can only focus on the task at hand, which is uh, building the models and fine tuning the models.
0: Very cool. So um, for the managed services, what, what is your top pick and, and why? Or have you used uh, or do you have a preference? Oh, so yeah. As I
1: as I mentioned, uh, SageMaker has a very good uh, machine learning environment within there within which there are several features that you can use to build a serverless machine learning end-to-end solution. Uh, we start with hosting the data in S3, which is the uh, storage solution for AWS. It's elastic in the sense that you can store as much and as as much of data as possible, and uh, and it will have the the measure of reliability as well in terms of it. It will replicate the data internally. So that's a very good elastic storage for storing the data, hosting the data. And then the, then basically uh, for every, each step in the machine learning pipeline, there's a feature. For example, there's a feature called SageMaker Data Wrangler, uh, which uh, is used to cleanse, transform, and prepare the data. And another good reason of using this feature is because a lot of the transformations that we would do would already be, would already be present there. So we don't have to, again, uh, write our own script. And at the same time, if we wanted to bring our own custom script, it has the possibility of doing that as well. So it lets us uh, do uh, all kinds of data exploration. And it's language agnostic as well. If, if uh, people are comfortable working with Python, that's good for them. And if they want to bring our uh, expertise with them, uh, they can do that with, uh, as well. So that's a great, that's a great awesome. feature within SageMaker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then there's the SageMaker Feature Store, which we haven't used as much, but it has a very interesting possibility for companies that have lots of different teams working on different machine learning problems, but somehow they work with data that might have intersecting needs. So imagine that team A is working with a specific use case and comes up with these 10 or 11 features that they're using and they build their machine learning model on it. And then there's team B who's working on a different use case, but might use some of the features uh, that team a has produced so then uh, instead of siloing both these teams and uh, ba- basically duplicating efforts uh, feature store uh, helps them create a feature library that all these teams can use reproducibly with same or different data sets as well so that's awesome. where it, yeah so that's yeah, where
0: yeah. Where it, so so um so another topic of conversation is around model ops which is like this new new um, methodology that that a lot of uh, companies and, and, and data scientists are adhering to. So, um, you know, to, to add some, some context to it, you know, data scientists um, are on average are using between five to seven different tools for developing models, uh, you know, so, you know, we're highlighting the potential for streamlining operations here. So um, you know, only like 25% um, rate their existing process as being very efficient for like inventorying production models, right? right? So um, in, in this one study, like 76% of respondents said that um, uh, there's gonna be a cost reduction associated with a model ops uh, platform, which is supposed to be very, uh, which has a very important uh, benefit uh, to like say an investment uh, for upper management. And while like 42% described it as being very crucial, um, what, what is your take on, on uh, model ops, which is like this, this hot new uh, um, method First of all, thank you
1: for those uh, statistics, uh, Tony. I didn't know about that, and that definitely seems staggering. Uh, I feel like that's another, and that's also a good segue of what I was going to mention next. Uh, in the in the in the data in the data pipeline that we we're working towards, is model model ops are essentially very necessary because uh, of the of the bottlenecks they remove. Because as a data scientist, as a data engineer, you you're not essentially you don't want to essentially deal with the Problems of that you usually have to overcome when you're working with DevOps, uh, figuring out how everyone can uh, share their code base, how everyone can uh, access each other's notebooks and build their work on them, and again focus their efforts in the sense that when they're working with different things, they don't have to uh, go to different technologies or different languages to work with different tools that they want to work with. So I think that's where that's where Amazon SageMaker shines as well because it kind of embodies the philosophy of model ops it makes you focus on what is important which is trying to build your pipeline first uh, verifiable path and then focusing on uh, modularly improving each and and every single component of it so as as we discussed we obviously talked about data wrangler and feature store the next one would be the SageMaker studio notebooks which again uh, builds into this philosophy of model ops and you can either use the pre designed machine learning algorithms or you can bring your own custom algorithms so that lets you focus and say okay so there are if if there if these are the algorithms which i think will, will work with uh, will work well with the data with work well with the data then i can uh, use these pre pre designed algorithms and then see what the performance is and then kind of compare them with the custom algorithms that i have built and th- in that scenario it lets you focus and as in the sense that you don't kind of go to a different technology, and you can certainly do that in SageMaker as well if you want to say, okay, uh, I want to use this algorithm, so rather than building it from the scratch, I'm going to use a predefined one and then just fine-tune it and see how good it does.
0: Awesome, awesome. So so um, you're saying that basically Model Ops is the next logical step after DevOps, is that correct? Definitely, I think so,
1: yeah. I think so, it removes a lot of technical debt that right. uh, you would have otherwise incurred because uh, we don't want uh, we don't want the data scientists to worry about the nitty gritty details of how to manage or host the the system where they're running their application.
0: Right. So we're we're looking for like a systematic way to make sure that the models that we're putting into production actually do what they should do. So um, you know, in, in, a, in another study. 90 um, percent of respondents actually expected to have a dedicated uh, model ops budget within the next 12 months um, what is your take on the future of model ops because uh, obviously you 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 have a strong opinions on on where devops uh, uh, is going or where it is and where it's going um, where do you think that model ops is going to be going um, you know 12 months from now or 24 months from now I think it's a
1: very encouraging sign that uh, people are realizing the true uh, f- true worth of model ops. So again, uh, and uh, this is a contested topic as well in machine learning, but I feel like model building is o- overrated in the sense that it often eclipses model ops. And this is where you really realize the worth of model ops. Uh, it's very it's more difficult to have a good model and then trying to figure out the, the framework of where it would fit rather than the opposite, where if you have a good framework, then it's not as hard to then figure out which model works best. And because now you've uh, established the success criteria, and once you've established the evaluation criteria, I I would compare it to a reinforcement learning model. Once you define the system, the rewards, and the action, everything kind of seems very intuitive after that point. And then I think model ops sort of kind of fits, uh, uh, condenses the problem into this reinforcement learning problem where you know what reward you have to get and you know different actions you can take. So it kind of simplifies things on a much more, uh,
0: elementary level. And that's right. what I
1: think. Uh, yeah,
0: yeah, we- yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and some closing thoughts. Um, you know, where, where do you where do you think um, what's going to happen after model ops? Right. So, model ops just appeared out of nowhere after DevOps uh, um, started coming into fruition. What do you think is the next logical like ops that will come after model ops? If there is is any. Uh, well, again, I I don't really have a buzz a buzzword for it, but
1: uh, there are certain best practices that you know when we're employing. Uh, ML ops or model ops we should follow in general and then again this assumes the framework that I've kind of defined here which is uh, and then again this is this is sort of uh, what I mentioned at the beginning uh, don't treat your uh, don't, don't treat any outcome you get as a bad or a good outcome uh, the outcome in this scenario is whether you can build that foundational uh, pipeline on which, uh, if, on which your model will run so don't put too much emphasis on whether initially when you're building it whether your model is doing good or bad that will fit in itself that will come in later when once you have the framework so don't kind of focus on on that be be very mind and the other thing is be very mindful of and this is kind of a note towards the serverless models as well Uh, when we are working with serverless models since we are not provisioning the servers and the resources the costs can skyrocket uh pretty fast so uh even though we're working with serverless model, understands what are understand what are the cost points and uh, what drives them, because uh, again they work on our input. So I don't want to essentially uh, uh, get a server that is running a small data, but it's just kind of wasting time in uh, building a very intensive memory intensive model, right? Which can be done with a with a model that's more straightforward.
0: And- awesome, awesome, awesome insight. Um, yeah, I uh, love to hear. Um, the, this conversation about it, um, but we got running out of time. Um, so thank you for uh, appearing on the AI podcast. Um, we'd love to see you in the future. Um, what's what's the future topic that um you'd like to discuss next time that you're with us?
1: Uh, first of all, first of all, thank you for having me, Tony. It's been a great experience. Definitely learned a lot myself as well. And uh, yeah, I would love to kind of uh, next again. There are different uh, paths we can take, but if we wanted to stay on this production grade machine learning pipeline, what we can do is uh, I can run through a specific use case we've dealt with in this arena. And uh, instead of talking about uh, it uh, on a high level, we can actually look at uh, how the specific things were handled for a specific use case within AWS SageMaker.
0: I think a lot of our audience members would love to hear uh, more use cases on the DevOps um, side, especially from someone um, who's who's had a, a lot of experience in in deploying uh, production-grade uh, models. And again, uh, thank you, Ayush, for uh, for, for showing up. Um, we'll see you guys next time on the next podcast. Thank you, Tony. Thanks for listening to the podcast. You can contact me at t o n y p. H O A N G dot com for more information on AI, ML, and data science.